<laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jolina Wolcott, and I am your hostess on this sacred learning journey of unraveling, unveiling, and becoming more fully alive at the end of the world as we know it. Hello. My name is Sarah Jelena Wolcott, and you are listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. I am delighted to be joined today with my guest, Ben Yoshua Davis. Ben, thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Ben serves as a director, um, serves on the BTS Center staff team as a director of applied research. As we will be talking about today, the BTS Center is based in Maine and builds on the legacy of the Bangor Theological Seminary. Today, the BTS Center seeks to catalyze spiritual imagination with enduring wisdom for transformational faith leadership, with a special focus on equipping spiritual leaders with resources in the midst of climate change. Ben himself has a background in podcasting, co-planting a church in Haverf Hill, Massachusetts, and serves as a worship leader for the two-year Academy for Spiritual Formation. He joins us from his home on Chapeg Island, Maine, the historical homeland of the Wampanoag peoples. Ben, um, I, you know, I wonder if we can just get started by kind of giving us, for those of our, of our listeners who are less familiar with the BTS Center, can you give kind of just an overview of what the BTS Center is doing and, and what does it mean when you have this, this cool title of Director of Applied Research within a spiritual center, which is a little bit unusual? Yes. So we joke at the BTS Center that we are a 200-year-old startup. Uh, we are the successor organization to Bangor Theological Seminary, which when it closed uh, in uh, 2013 was the second oldest seminary in the country. And it was mm. a remarkable organization based in Northern Maine in Bangor that uh, really its purpose for 200 years was to find people who were considered too old, too poor, or too uneducated to receive a theological education, to train them, and then send them out generally to marginal rural communities that otherwise would not have received theologically trained leadership. And they held to this vision and this constituency with an almost unbelievable degree of tenacity. They nearly closed seven times in their first 100 years, because uh, mm. as, as you might imagine, this is not, you're, you're not engaging a group of Vanderbilts and Rockefellers when you're, when you're looking for that particular population. Um, as, mm -hmm. as they began to get into the late part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century with all the disruptions in American Christendom and in higher education, they kind of saw the writing on the wall for what they were doing. And they said, we want to close before the last dollar has been spent and the last student has left so that there can be a seed for something new. And the BTS mm. Center, which is now based in Portland, Maine, is the result of that seed with our purpose being to equip spiritual leaders for a climate changed world. And so our work really revolves around that in terms of, of, of what we do. We think of spiritual leadership, both in terms of pastors who are leading congregations that are part of our kind of the historic part of our constituency, but also people, um, regardless whether of their faith background or if they have a faith background, who want to take a spiritual frame to approaching this moment that we're at. And so we do that through events, through conversations, through leadership formation opportunities, and through research as well. Mm. 
So there's so many things about that that I love. One is that you're um, taking the, the, the breadth of understanding of spiritual leadership, right? Which I feel uh, is so critical because there are so many people who are working with a spiritual framework outside of a, of a church or outside of a um, even a loosely, loosely determined spiritual center and who are doing incredibly hard spiritual work within the context of organizations and other, other institutions, which are not officially religious or spiritual at all. Um, but I also really, you know, the story of, of what does it mean to end well? I sometimes feel that theological education should probably begin with this question of endings. How do we, how do we die? Um, and, and what does it mean to die in a way that can be reborn? It's sort of that at the center of, of, of so many of the questions that, that are before us as spiritual beings. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the, the great lies, the great myths of modern white Western society is this understanding of like, everything can be immortal. And if it's not immortal, it's somehow mm. a failure. But what any of us who have gardened know is that's actually not the way that mm. living things work. We're born, we live, we thrive, and then we grow old and we pass. And hopefully what we offer is returned back to the earth, to the soil of our communities so that it can be resurrected in the form of something new. And I think we are at this point, um, certainly speaking from kind of my tribe as, you know, a, a Western white American Christian, where there is a lot of dying that needs to happen so that new life mm. can spring up. Um, there are so many communities mm. that are kind of in this place. They're on anxiety written life support and do not know um, what could be next. Of course, this is very ironic coming as I do from a tra tradition that says there's death and then there's resurrection, um, but you have to get to the dying first, <laughs> which I think is, is, really, um, is really challenging. And, and it, because it pushes back against kind of our, our culture's fear of, fear of death, but it is a very kind of ecological frame. And one of the things I think about a lot that I feel so privileged to work for the organization I do is that we are a parable of what death and resurrection can look like for a be beloved 200-year-old mm. institution to make that decision and to move to a new phase of its life. And this new phase looks very, very different than the old phase. Um, is really is really quite remarkable. And I find to be a really kind of inspiring parable that we can offer um, other communities that are going through the same thing. You know, I'm just wondering if you could take a, a quick moment and think like from the context, because I, your, your, your research community is, is, you know, thinking about organizations a great deal. So what does it mean, like given your experience thus far, for an organization um, to die well? We've, we've put a lot of effort into that for anyone who's doing pastoral care or thinking about end of life questions. But what, what do you think it really, how does an organization die well when it recognizes that its time has come? which I think that in itself is obviously one of the critical stages. Yes. Well, and I think death can take a lot of forms. Um, mm. And that's the other thing to say. I think when people hear the word die, um, especially for instance, in a congregational setting, since that's the setting I know the best, I'll speak from, I'll speak from there. We think of death means, you know, um, an abandoned building on the side of the road and kind of nothing left but dust and memories. But there are many forms of, there are many forms of death. Sometimes that's dying to beloved institutional structures. Sometimes that's dying to spaces that carry with them generational memories. Sometimes that's dying to certain theologies that at some point may have been helpful, but are now, um, that are now destructive. And one of the things that I think this moment calls out of us is a willing to be 
a willingness to be bracingly honest about the moment we're in and the things that we might need to let go of. So much of what I see in organizational settings, congregations and likewise, is a profound amount of energy invested into death denial. We find all mm. sorts of ways to pretend that there can be some sort of unbroken uh, continuity between what was before and what needs to emerge now. And I actually find that um, when organizations admit that that is not possible, um, that that actually becomes a moment, not just for grief and lament, which are of course a very important part of that, but are actually um, are incredible serve as grounds for empowerment and hope as well. One of the interesting things I've learned, I've been working with seven different organizations across New England, not congregations, um, coming from kind of different religious or a-religious backgrounds. We've been exploring this question together as a co-learning community. How would organizations act differently today if they embodied an ecological imagination? And yeah. so let me, mm -hmm. let me just like, just make sure we're clear about this. So you're, you're doing this work as a research director, and this is a co-learning community that the BTS center is hosting. Is that correct? That, that is correct. And then part of what I'm doing is coming along uh, and kind of observing what is happening using qualitative research mm -hmm. methods, trying to really pay attention to the shape of people's experience. As they think about what does it mean to exercise leadership as an organizational leader in the climate changed moment that we're in. Um, right. And this is, and I just want to point out that like, to my, to my knowledge, you're one of a, this is a very unusual thing for spiritual communities to have this question of like, what does spiritual leadership look like in the midst of this change? And to actually take a qualitative approach personally, as someone, you know, who's coming from both a social science and a theological background, I get very excited about this kind of thing <laughs> um, because, because it's so rare that, 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 that people are asking spiritual questions informed with like this sort of qualitative research approach and that who are recognizing the possibilities of participatory and applied research that we can actually answer these questions, not, not in some theolo theoretical way, but we can also be answering them from the experience of the people who are doing it. And we can build our theology and we can build our theory uh, from the, from like these sort of learning cohorts and that they, we can subsequently uh, grow from that. Right. One of the things we talk about with my work, and I realized I didn't talk about what I do as <laughs> director of applied research. So what we do in applied research is we're trying to ask global questions with a localized focus, centering the, centering the needs, the experience, and the wisdom of practitioners. So for us, our research begins with people's experience on the ground. We want to take very seriously the idea that the people who have the best idea about what's going on right now are the people who are doing the work. Mm. And that part of um, like, so part of my job, for instance, in this co-learning community is to help surface that wisdom through what we're observing that people are sharing. And it is amazing the wisdom that people have who are bringing this ecological mindset to their work. But one of the things we discovered that I think is very interesting is that when organizational leaders give up on the idea that they can change the world, that that's just not something that's possible. There is this grandiosity that is baked into most organizational culture where the idea is like um, success is eventually scaling up until you solve the problem at a global level, till you change the world. But of course, that is not the way that human organization works. We're limited in our agency. We're limited in our power because of the structures that we're embedded in. And one of the things we discovered is that when leaders were able to name, you know what? 
um, my organization, which I love so much, these are all mission-driven nonprofits with people who passionately care about their work. Mm-hmm. When they said, you know what? We're not going to be able to change the world. It actually, that admission, far from being a site of disempowerment or despair, is actually the site for hope because it allows people to put down a burden that was never theirs to carry for the first place in the first place. And then to ask, okay, so I can't change the world, but how can I still meaningfully make a difference and discovering there are still ways, especially at a local level where people are able to, to, to exercise influence, to create profound cultural change. Mm -hmm. So kind of getting back to this question of what does, what does um, death look like? Sometimes when we can admit our communities are mortal along with everything else. Mm. They're born, they live, they grow, they die, they change. When we can admit that, it opens up incredible energy for hope and optimism even and innovation to occur because then people can say, all right, if, if the immortality of our community is not a given, then what are the things that we can still place our hope in? Where are the places we still can engage? And that incidentally leads to a lot of vitality that there's so much in the in the blessing of death and in the blessing of our of our limitations and the bless is like well, there's a reason that we are limited right like that that is part of what it means to be human on this earth uh, at all points in time on this earth's history um is is that we are deeply finite and um and i i'm hearing in this is like you know obviously as as you know and as we've talked about before um I spend a certain amount of my time in in my I, I, I think in my head a fair amount about uh, the 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 time of the of the papal bulls at the doctrine of discovery um, and mm-hmm. early colonization and and part of what I'm hearing is that kind of deeply imperial and colonial attitude uh, that we can save the world you know there's a sort of very very deep savior complex uh, which is deeply which I'm kind of curious, like when you, when, when you're helping people, when you're watching people engage with that, to what extent do they, is it helpful for people to recognize uh, this sort of, not just the white savior complex, but this sort of Christian, like this very particular history of, of this Christian colonial idea of what it means to be a good person is to quote unquote, save the world. Like how much is, how much do you see that coming up and how, how are those frames helpful for people? I think that there is, at least among the community that I'm working with in this co-learning community, which to be clear is this is not like this co-learning community is not an explicitly kind of Christian space. And it is a it is a group of kind of mixed religious or a-religious convictions. Um, but it is, we have also named it kind of as a spiritual space that I think a, a, a lot of people I've discovered have come to this work because they already had this conviction deep in their, in their guts already. Mm, mm. Um, one of the things that's really surprised me about this group of, of, of people is that when we share, for instance, the framing that we hold as an organization, that, that the climate crisis is a planetary manifestation of a spiritual issue, that what we see manifesting and we talk about in terms of parts per million, actually, you look underground, there are spiritual roots to this. And so we have to address this in spiritual ways. And by spiritual, we mean our deepest held values, the stories that we carry with us, what we see and what we don't see in the world, that people are really have been really open and willing to, uh, to go there and are willing to really work hard to deconstruct these narratives 
not just because they see them as bad for the world, but because they've identified the ways that they're really destructive for themselves personally as well. One of the things that I've learned this last year is so many leaders, and this is certainly true for nonprofit leaders, but my suspicion it is true for most organizational leaders, labor under these terrible anxiety and burdens. The, the constraints that come with feeling like you just have to run, 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 run all the time without stopping or else you're not honoring your work. Um, the, the burden of knowing that the world is changing under our feet in ways that on the whole are not good and that we really can't control. Mm-hmm. And the burden, again, of, of knowing that on the one hand, we were all grown up to told, go out, change the world. You can be whatever you can be. And discovering, as I think most of us do, that that is actually not possible and having mm. to learn um, learn a different narrative. Mm. What I found is people are actually really receptive to that narrative being challenged and changed and in a way that I found genuinely surprising considering the ways that these dominant myths of domination, of unlimited agency and power are still really kind of commanding the public square mm. that actually quietly, a lot of people are realizing this actually doesn't work for anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of my in my early kind of engagement first with climate change and and then understanding the connections between climate change and colonization historically is mm. is the extent to which the colonial mindset from which climate change arises does not work for the colonizer as for it doesn't you know white supremacy does not work for the white person and and that, and that we've been lying to ourselves and letting ourselves formulate institutions uh, that that pretend that all these, as you say, um, fictitious stories. <laughs> I like to, I like to hold hold the power of myth and other in other in the word myth to other <laughs> potentialities. Um, but these fictitious stories can really have really really deeply deeply gotten in the way of our own health and well being. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's absolutely true, and I think. As we hit this moment, I think about, so like the word apocalypse is mm. one that I think about a lot because the word apocalypse means unveiling. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what's happening right now, and it's been manifest, in, especially in, in like the United States over the last few years with the very public reckoning that is beginning again, that was catalyzed by the death of George Floyd by the pandemic, which um, really exposed to us how delicate the, our whole economic system is and how abjectly dependent uh, we are on some very unreliable sources for our mm-hmm. ways of life. Mm-hmm. Um, the unreliability of our democracy, and I think most heartbreakingly and terrifyingly, the unreliability of nature, the ways that we've changed it mm-hmm. in ways that we can't compre- comprehend because mm-hmm. you know we as humans have not faced this before as a species, that all of this has really exposed the fallacy of so many of these settler colonial stories in ways that I don't think have surfaced completely like all the way into public discourse, but that people are really starting to pick up and look at, sometimes very quietly. I've discovered in this co-learning community that we've been leading, oftentimes the most empowering thing that people experience is just having a space where other folks don't think they're crazy when they, mm. when they share their, their skepticism and their doubts. I remember when we shared this framing at our opening retreat, and then we invited people to go back into breakout groups and share kind of where, where did, where did what we share kind of land in your bodies? What were you feeling? The first thing that people shared was grief. 
The second thing that people shared was relief because mm. they were finally among other people who were voicing the convictions that they shared, but had not been able to voice before. So I do think that these stories are being exposed for the way, kind of in the ways that they are lies and the ways that they're incomplete. Um, I don't know that the new stories are emerging yet, but I think simply the fact that we can say, you know, these stories, um, it's time for them to die and that's okay, is again, enormously empowering and hopeful for a lot mm -hmm. of people. And the critical importance, and, and this is, I think, worth, worth um, you know, kind of leaning into, and the critical importance of creating spaces like the ones that you have created where people can have a chance to experience that collective relief together, where they don't mm -hmm. have to be just challenging it individually. And, and hopefully that just even for the listeners, you know, even if this alone is what you can take away as like, you know, I can't, how, to what extent can you help to create those spaces where people can have those moments of being able to recognize that they're not the only people in the room um, who are sharing this deep dis, um, recognition of, of the, of, of the many aspects that need to die and the blessings that death can bring. Um, I'm wondering, like, let's, let's go, let's go a bit deeper into like, what are you, what have you been learning in this co-learning community? We talked about the, uh, the many limitations of the stories that have been carried and the people's clear recognition of the need to go beyond that. Um, and, and, and I, and I love that we've started with death. That's always a great place to start. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> memento mori always the perfect place to begin a podcast conversation <laughs> completely so so tell tell some other 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 aspects that you've been learning in this time and other things that that would be that would be helpful for 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 some of our listeners to 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 hear your stories from your fire yeah um so this is actually something i've had the opportunity to think about quite a bit i just kind of released an uh, an initial report to our community saying this is what i've observed over our time together and when we bring kind of the idea of ecological imagination into the room how does that change the way people see their organizations and there are some patterns some very discrete patterns that emerged very quickly um one is that space is the most necessary precursor for cultural transformation. And by space, I don't necessarily mean like where you are, but the level of spaciousness in your organization. One of the things I've learned is that busyness is a form of avoidance. Oftentimes in organizations, especially when we're in moments of institutional stress and crisis, we think we can work our way out the other end. We can busy our way out the other end, like just make the hamster wheel spin a lot faster. But in fact, the key thing to do if we really want to get to these cultural issues is to stop, to pause, to give some room for breath, to give some room for conversations to unfold. And it's only when we do that that we can get to the roots of what we hope our organizations will be. And I found that's kind of a counterintuitive thing. Like in moments of crisis, slow down. Don't speed up, slow down. That's I've great. That, That's yeah. You know, it's it's so great, and it's um, I I I I actually think that we're gonna have to um, put that in an article format. <laughs> you know, like just that 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 that's a perfect Instagram post. Like in moments of crisis, slow down. Um, and because the 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 again to kind of relate that to some to to you know both to to the to this colonial culture 
that is not what the colonization process did. I mean, the colonization process was one that was very much full speed ahead at no matter what the human ecological cost. And like that's, and there was a sense of urgency that we had to conquer the world as fast as possible, we being um, a European um, folks. And before someone else got to the conquering, you know, if we don't conquer now, someone else is gonna conquer. Like that kind of mentality drove so much of the colonial enterprise. And like, when I hear you say that, I, I'm just seeing these like layers and layers of history where that attitude has been the source of so much pain and suffering and that it continues today in so many organizations, especially those who have big missions, big heart, heartfelt missions, um, who don't, who are afraid of not having spaciousness. Yeah, no, I, I and, and that's one of the things I, I found is, you know, I mean, this, this, this coloring community was obviously a time commitment. And one of the things I found is so many of its members had to ferociously hold these few hours a month mm. open against the overwhelming pressure of their to-do lists and institutional expectations. Busyness is just our culture. And that becomes even more frenetic in times of institutional stress like we're in right now. And so it actually takes incredible determination and groundedness to be, to say, no, I'm holding space open to do this thing. Or no, we as an organization need to stop and to pause so that we can do some reflection about our primary purposes. There's also this thing that happens where I think busyness is equated with productivity. Mm. And so we think we are doing a good job as an organization when we are busy doing lots of stuff. And this we have also discovered <laughs> is not true. In mm. fact, um, Oftentimes, it is better to do fewer things with greater joy and with more intention that actually makes a bigger impact than doing as many things as we can possibly jam into the few work hours we have uh, every day. And I think that that's, that's been another thing that's really come up for me is I, as I listen to the story of so many of these organizations, I'd say they probably like not only would they enjoy their work a lot better, their work would also probably be a lot better if there was more spaciousness, if they were able to do less. And it's been amazing to watch some of these organizations actually lean into that as a um, lean into that as kind of a cultural value as well. Yeah, I, I wanna hear more about the different different things you're learning, but I, I'm wanting like, I can just kind of dig into this, the last thing you said a little bit there. Um, what, because this is, what enables an, an organization, how, how can an organization become, actually change that way of being to become more spacious like what do you find has been helpful to enable an organizations as as a whole to become more spacious so there's only so much i can say about this because we've only been researching this for a year and mm. i think we all know organizational transformation takes time and that's why our research process is ongoing and we'll have other stages but i have a i have a couple hypotheses one thing is to remember that sometimes small rituals and small practices make an outsized difference. Mm. There is a story that one person shared. She's a board chair of one of the organizations that's participating where she just decided at the beginning of every board meeting, they were going to do a meaningful check-in about how everyone in the room was doing or what they were grateful for. And the board chair decided to frame that as a radical exercise saying, we are living in a world where the narrative is scarcity so we are going to practice gratitude and abundance. 
And she and her colleagues all noted, you know, we were about to have these really difficult conversations and we're like, do we really have time in our like overpacked board agenda to do like this exercise of gratitude? But they found when they did, they approached those subsequent conversations with a great deal more focus and intention that'll actually allow them to go to deeper places than they would have otherwise. So I think sometimes we look at these questions of organizational transformation and we think, oh my goodness, how could I transform this entire system? What is the big, gigantic organization-changing initiative that we can do? (laughs) But what the power of emergence tells us is that actually when you begin locally, You begin with your own practice of spaciousness. You begin with your practice of spaciousness that you can exercise with you and your colleagues in the same department or on the same program or in the same activity. That those things over time, their influence gets magnified really, really significantly. And I think it's important to note too, an organization's ability to practice spaciousness is also limited by the systems in which it's embedded. Like, you know, one of the conversations we have a lot in these circles is like, how do you deal with the nonprofit industrial complex? Mm -hmm. Because all of this is great, but oftentimes for organizations that are dependent upon donors or grant making bodies for funding, there's a limit to your agency because, you know, salaries still need to be paid, programs still need to happen. And so part of this is also a really honest and intentional reckoning with How much are we going to be able to step into this identity while we are still embedded in these larger industrial capitalist systems? And how can we intentionally engage and be in conversation with those systems in ways that allow us to keep our integrity as best as we as we possibly can? Again, that goes back to the how we can't change the world. Like none of our organizations that are embedded in the frenetic productivity obsessed culture that we're in can become as spacious as we want to be because Mm. we're in relationship with all those, those other kind of organizational ecosystems. We can't, we can't disembed ourselves from them. And so the question becomes, well, if that's true, and that is true, then what can we do? And uh, I think, again, that's a, a tremendously empowering thing. So we don't have to reach out and feel guilty when we don't hit the perfect, you know, abstract ideal for spaciousness within our organizations. But we say, um, knowing that we're never going to hit that ideal because we live in, we live in the actual world, what can we do to make a, a meaningful difference? And again, mm-hmm. I find when people can do some of that reframing, it enables them to note places like, well, we can do a gratitude practice at the beginning of our board meetings, or I and my schedule can block off one hour every afternoon when I'm busy, but the thing I'm busy with is creating some space for myself to do some reflection or whatever that practice might be, trusting that it in and of itself is efficacious and will make a difference. Um, even if it's something that starts very small, Mm. you know, in my, in my own, in my own life and work, I don't have as many, um, uh, I don't, I don't receive funding from an outside funding source. Right. Um, so in some ways I know that for myself, I can have, I have a lot more spaciousness than many of the people who I, who I work with. And, um, and even, and it's, it's fascinating how much, like I, I still have, I'm still learning and I think I'm much, much better at this than I used to be in part because my, my, my partner um, has a chronic illness and that chronic illness has taught her that she has to rest. And it's, and in, and living with her has reinforced my own propensity to to incorporate rest into my day-to-day life but it's been fascinating to me the extent to which um 
illness, especially chronic illness, can really act as a way to help open open our perspective to other ways of being. And I'm kind of, and so I'm wondering like in your, for your learners and what has chronic illness or has experiences um, perhaps of the pandemic helped people engage with both rest and urgency and productivity in different ways. So it's, it's funny. Um, there's this story that one person tells, um, was a director of an organization and began to get cluster headaches, um, horrible cluster headaches. And when the cluster headaches came, had no choice, but to sit down and, and, and rest and began to realize he, he looked up one day and said, Oh my goodness, is, is this it? Is this mm. my rest? Like cluster headaches are the moment mm. that I get to rest, mm. which helped kind of reframe the ways that this person's um, approach to work had gotten out of balance. As someone who's struggled with debilitating chronic illness at multiple points um, in my life, um, as young as the age of 10, and as recently as a few years ago, you do learn how um, when you're no longer able to be productive, like the rest of society is productive, you do have to wrestle with some pretty existential questions. I remember mm-hmm. I guess this was now five or six years ago, being really, really sick and pretty much having the rest of my life happen on the other side of the bedroom door and saying, all right, like I'm not getting any better. And so if this is my life, uh, what am I going to do? And where am I going to find my worth? And Mm -hmm. having to kind of rebuild it from this limited frame. And thank God eventually found the right treatment, which I know does not happen for most people with invisible chronic illness. And I'm largely normal and able-bodied now. But um, in those moments, I had to, I learned the gift of, of limitation. And I learned that my time was a precious gift that I had to offer with a great deal of attention. And that also is true when you have children, um, because there's all your work, which feels big and great and important. But sometimes the most important thing you can do is play catch with your six-year-old on the front yard or read mm-hmm. that Daniel Tiger book you've read 72,000 times before <laughs> to, your, to your daughter. And it, those are moments that I find, at least for me, pull me back into the now, help me uh, relativize my overblown Western ego about the importance of my own work and bring me back to some of those spacious rhythms where I discover when I engage with them, actually more stuff opens up than if I was just busy, busy, busy. Mm, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that the spaciousness that opens up, like that's, that's really where the divine has a chance to move. Yeah, it does. I think one of the things that is true in every one of our religious traditions is there are always strands of of emphasizing silence and solitude and space, not space you fill with something else. So this isn't, you know, you go for a walk, but you listen to a podcast or Mm. every five minutes you go and check your phone, but space, this is the, this is the contemplative tradition that we find in so many of our, so many of our religious traditions. In fact, I think all of our healthy religious traditions have this, this contemplative strand because what we find is it's in those moments when there's openness that spirit can meet us in ways that there is no space for spirit to meet, to, to meet us when our space is closed in by all these other things mm-hmm. that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that's the reason why people often find space like attentional space. So terrifying in our culture is 
you know, those are the moments where you begin to notice in your gut what feels wrong about your life, where you have to address your deepest fears and hopes that are most of the time are anesthetized by, you know, that box that we all have in our, uh, that we all have in our pockets that we can look at and get an instant little dopamine hit from. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have in our culture such a deep hunger for spaciousness, but also at times some fear, because who knows, like if you stopped, who knows, who knows what's going to catch up with mm. you. Mm. And I, I'm so curious, like as you, as you've been mulling over, especially these questions around space and um, I would say relaxation as part of that, right? Um, then how has that been able to, have you been able to feed that back to the BTS center in ways like has the BTS center been able to kind of learn from their learning community in, in either this or in other aspects? Yes. So in fact, one of the things the the BTS center actually participated, there were a team of people from the BTS center who participated in this co-learning community as participants. Mm. And this idea of spaciousness was one that I know has really kind of struck home for us as an organization. And so this December, we are taking a month of intentional pause. We are not scheduling any programming. In December, you said. Yep. December. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're not scheduling any programming. We're trying not to schedule meetings, lots of outside conversations, and instead are taking that month with a great deal of intention. And this is actually what we're working through right now as a staff is what exactly we are going to be doing during that month to have some space, to take a breath, and then to have some deep questions about reflection and uh, about where we're going, about our identity, about our hopes for the future that can only really happen at a deep level when there's some space to let it breathe. Mm-hmm. And that to me actually is a wonderful embodiment of this. This That's works beautiful. for us um, seasonally because um, December is not a month that people really want to do a lot. We work with a lot of clergy. They're really busy going up to the Christmas season. Most people are, in fact, the holidays are very busy and honestly quite stressful for lots of folks. So for us to step back during the season and do this work is actually really, really fits with the rhythm of the people who we're, who we're sharing our work with. And so this felt like a really good moment, as I say, to take a breath, to pause, to introduce some spaciousness into our organizational conversations, and then to see what emerges. That's beautiful. My, I know that my partner takes roughly two, um, she takes both January and August more or less off uh, for, and it's in part because of that, but it's also to make sure that she can kind of have the energy for the rest of the, of the year. And I have been inspired by that to, to really think about how, how to take uh, not just regular daily, daily re- relaxation and weekly relaxation. Um, and one of my elders calls it drool time when, <laughs> when you're not, when you're like, I think of, I like the phrase cloud gazing more, but to kind of give yourself the spaciousness to, to not be trying to figure things out or to not be doing something, but to let yourself stare and, um, and real and like kind of deeply relax. But I love, I love, uh, being able to do that as an entire organization for a month. Like it just feels like so much, you know, we often talk about sabbaticals as for individuals, but we don't talk about what does it mean for an organization um, to take that kind of spaciousness. And I'm very curious to to see uh, what that looks like. When, um, so maybe I'll check in with you in January and see what that looks like um, and, and, and what might be possible. And, and it's really beautiful that you have been able to take those learnings from your 
um, community from from the from the learning cohort and be able to apply it directly within the context of the BTS center. Yeah, and and I want to name too that that we're able to do this in part because of our privilege. We mm-hmm. have financial resources from um, the seminary. I joked that our that much of our work is built on two hundred years worth of widows' mites. All these <laughs> small donations and the property were literally the first buildings were built by the students and the professors. And then Bangor kind of grew up in that, that area. And like, we are a direct beneficiary of all that. And we are very aware for a lot of organizations, just taking a month out of, off of programming would not be possible. But again, for us, this is part of us taking our, our privilege and our resources seriously to say, how can we live into this identity in, in the way that we feel most called and shaped to do so? And that's true. And I think it's actually more, there's, there's more is possible than I think many organizations realize, you know, mm. and I think like some of it is like being able to like kind of inquire and ask the questions and, and having, con- if you're funded, can, to what extent can you talk with your funders and to what extent are your funders struggling with the same issues themselves, right? Um, and I certainly know funders who, who them have, found, they themselves have, uh, are as beset with these questions as, as the folks they are funding. Oh, for sure. And, and this gets back again to that idea, colonialism, industrial mm-hmm. capitalism is, mm-hmm. it is, it is not good for the anxious industrial capitalist funder anymore than it is good for the stressed out uh, limited organizations that they are, are funding. And I've grown to realize how all of us as humans are, are, are trying to bring ourselves into places of joy and love and thriving and peace, sometimes in ways that are very limited by our cultural, by our cultural context. But oftentimes, as I say, like what's good for the nonprofit would be also good for the people who, uh, who fund it as well. Mm-hmm. So we touched on death and suffering and spaciousness. Um, so what are there any other kind of core things you would like to kind of highlight as of learnings from the learning community that you're taking away or that's coming up right now in this moment? One learning that has been really helpful. And we found that actually so much of the learning has actually been about shifting perception. So much of our work in organizational life is about what we see and what we don't see and the frames by which we see it. One of the things that we found has been really fruitful is when we invited organizations to consider their organizations not as machines, but as ecologies or as beings with our own kind of personality and stories and hopes and dreams. And we've discovered that when people start thinking about their organizations as an ecology that needs to be tended to, that is, that is a living, that it opens up lots of really exciting possibilities for how they frame their leadership. For instance, it means that rather than thinking about success as productivity and outputs, we begin to think about success as what does it mean to develop a thriving ecosystem of relationships, rather than considering our organizations to be islands onto themselves, you know, producing whatever their, their widget is material or otherwise that gets sent out into the world, that we think about the ways that we're connected to other organizations. And it leads to this very high bias towards collaboration Of course, one of the other things that that means is whenever you start to become in deeper relationship with other people, it opens you up to a lot of change. Um, It opens you a lot up to a lot of chaos and false Mm. starts and failures. And what we've learned is part of the ecological mindset is to not look at those things as problems or to look Mm. at, uh, look at those things as signs that something has gone wrong, but to understand 
they're part and parcel of understanding our, our organizations as living things. This is the way things work. And what I've discovered is leaders who have spent some time practicing this are just, I've never seen people who are more non-anxious about failure and false starts in my life. I remember talking to someone and I was taking a tour around their neighborhood. This is an incredible group called Boston Food Forest Coalition that's starting food forests across mm -hmm. Boston. And we went, we looked at their, the first food forest they ever started. But as he's walking me through the neighborhood, he points to a, he points to a lot and he's like, yeah, we tried to get something started there. But as it turns out, the neighbors weren't interested. They were more interested in affordable housing. And then we'd walk a few more blocks down the road and it'd be like, yeah, we were looking at something there too, but the kind of the community energy didn't coalesce around it. And here are some of the kind of the open things that still haven't been completed in this first food forest that they started. And there was no anxiety. There was no judgment. It was just like, this is the work. This is what mm -hmm. means what it means to be in living relationship with other people. And that's a very different set of kind of leadership mindsets and competencies than we're taught as organizational leaders, where the idea is that you form a plan that's strong enough to stay the way it is, no matter what comes at it. Um, and then if that plan begins to shake or crumble or begin to change, that means that someone did something wrong, probably you. And so this, uh, but this, this mindset of openness and adaptability and change is just a part of the process um, actually takes all the anxiety out of that in a ways that allows some really dynamic things uh, to emerge. And again, it's really neat to watch as people begin to do some of that reframing and begin to look at their, their, their failures and their false starts and as experiments, just as the way, just as the way life is that becomes tremendously uh, liberating. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Just being with life as it is. Yeah, that that is a very profound lesson. And not trying to make things good or bad, but but simply be asking this question of what is it that's wanted in this particular space. Right. I mean, any of us who have a garden know that like, you know, you, you can get better at gardening. There are things you can do, but in the end the plants grow and sometimes they don't grow. And sometimes, you know, it just rains for 60 straight days and, mm -hmm. you know, there's not enough sunlight and everything just gets mildewed or some days, sometimes there's no rain or sometimes seeds come out, but sometimes they don't, but like, we don't actually control that. We can help mm -hmm. cultivate a healthy environment, but life is far too dynamic to be directly, you know, within our control. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And it's completely true for our organizations as well. Mm. And do you, you've been using some, uh, uh, you keep on peppering the conversation with gardening metaphors, which I really appreciate. Um, do you, so obviously you yourself garden and is actually helping people getting their hands in the soil. Has that, is that something that the BTS center is finding ways of, of supporting? So we, we have naturally found that some of the people within our, our relational circles tend to be farmers with a spiritual bent or um, spiritual leaders who have turned farmer or who do both. We have been working to find ways, especially to get people kind of in contact with wild nature. So mm. we've done a lot of one day retreats we'll call Wonder and Wander, where we'll uh, invite folks to come to a beautiful spot. And then there is kind of a guided day where we walk, go through that environment together and offer questions for reflection so that people can be back, can kind of get back in connection with the more than human communities that they're already embedded with. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and being in Bangor and like, you know, being in Maine, which is a place which has had 
uh, it's one of the few states of the nation which has had a truth or reconciliation process. Um, and, you know, First Light and other organizations have, have really um, taken a lot of leadership, I would say. Um, how, has, how has this process of returning to the soil and thinking and supporting farmers and, and thinking about land, how has that related or intersected with, the, with Maine and other places like attempts to, um, to support uh, the indigenous peoples of your place? So I think first of all, just to just to make sure that that you know for those of your listeners who may be familiar with Maine, one of the big changes that did happen um, with this new manifestation of Bangor Theological Seminary, even though we're still called the BTS Center, is now we're located, you know, a good two hours plus south in Portland, which mm. is a different landscape. It's on the coast and Southern Maine culturally is quite different than mm. the Northern Maine. And so there are ways that there are, there is both continuity and also discontinuity with this, that we're still kind of working our way through. And what does that mean for our historic constituency and the people who we feel we're being shaped to reach at this time? I think for, for us, a lot of the work has been about building friendships with our indigenous neighbors and seeking to learn from them. I know actually on the podcast, the BTS Center's podcast, Climate Change, we actually had an episode where we centered three indigenous voices. Um, Kiana Pardilla, who is, a, um, who is a young Wabanaki woman, Sherry Mitchell, who is an incredible indigenous writer and activist who actually spoke at our annual event convocation a few years ago, and Robin Wall Kimmerer, who did an event with Rob Shetterly um, a few years ago during our summer art series. Because we believe that um, we do believe that it, it is important as we reckon with the history and the effects of colonization to engage with our indigenous kin and also to hear their wisdom. Because I do think um, part of the work of decolonizing is about going kind of back home and learning to engage with your lineage. I think. Mm -hmm. This is this is this has become you know really important for me is, you know there can be a tendency I find in white circles sometimes to think about decolonization as a form of spiritual consumerism or appropriation, and mm. I think oftentimes, but often what it's about it's, it's about going home and it's about doing the the, the hard work of looking at your own um, ancestry and looking at the layers often of 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 ancestors who were both oppressed and oppressors and dealing with complicity and guilt, dealing with, with trying to surface the resources and the hope that can be a part of that. And then um, also um, beginning, to do, beginning to do reckoning about how all of this has shaped our worldviews and our capacity to be loving, peaceful, justice-seeking people in this moment that, uh, in this moment that we're in. Mm. Um, well, you're, you're speaking my language, as you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's always one of the pleasures of speaking with you and, and really everyone who I've had the chance to interact with at the BTS Center is just how much, um, how much commonality and how much coherence there is in, in, a, lot of our, in a lot of our language and our thinking. Hmm. Um, all right, and I'm just kind of chuckling because right now we are... Uh, producing a, uh, a resource for supporting people in their ancestral journeys and ancestor work. So we, I, I love, I love this collection of, of, of pieces that you've 
Um, it feels like, and I think what's striking to me as I think about all these different pieces as you talked about learning about, you know, uh, death, limitations, suffering, um, engaging with ancestors, thinking about spaciousness and rest differently, um, and and the relationships and ecosystems in which we live. You know, those are all like what I what I'm hearing in all of those are these very basic spiritual questions. You know, those those are the question those are the kinds of questions that one might I could easily frame, you know, a a, a Lent <laughs> conversation around this or 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 a spirit, you know, a spiritual inquiry or theological inquiry 101 could easily be shaped around these big uh, questions. And, and that makes a lot of sense, given that climate change and colonization are spiritual crises. That they, mm. And it's like, so it makes sense that, that what you're coming up with, that the, that the, that the learnings that your learning community is, is grappling with are themselves some of the most core spiritual questions that we get to engage with as humans, uh, that we have the opportunity to continually be learning from, um, given given the, the 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 spiritual crisis that that is at the root cause um, of the times that we are in. Um, so, uh, so there's a wholeness. There's a wholeness to what you you are you are describing and to what you are saying. Uh, which is encouraging, I think, in a lot of ways to hear. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm growing increasingly convinced by is, is what is what we are facing here is is a it's a very it's a crisis about what does it mean to be human, especially mm. for those of us who are embedded in white Western privileged culture. And that is a question that people of all religious faiths and no religious faith are all holding in common right now. And one of the beautiful things about kind of a spiritual analysis of the moment that it is, is it takes all these disparate elements and says, actually, these are all a part of the same story. Mm -hmm. If you look, you can mm -hmm. see the rich ecology of connections that link these all together into the same thing. And when we begin to kind of share and explore that new story, it changes our perception and it begins to change our lives. And I've had the privilege of starting to watch some of that happen with many of these folks in the co-learning community who incidentally were practicing and exploring this new story far before they came to us and will continue to practice it um, far after the co-learning community ends. And I, it gives me great hope that as our old stories come crashing down, as well they should, that there are new stories that are waiting to emerge. I think they're still in many ways on the margins, but I think people are becoming far more cognizant of the fact that we are in a moment that we need a new story about what it means to human in a climate-changed world. And that's where I think so many of our spiritual traditions have something really important to offer all of us as we grapple with what that moment means together. Mm. Mm. You know what, that might, that might, you might have already answered this question in what you just said, but I want to kind of ask it in a slightly different way, which is what are you, what are you both personally and, and also in your, in your role professionally, what are you remembering? Hmm. We have hit on a few of those things. Mm -hmm. um, so far, I work constantly to remember that the climate crisis is a spiritual problem. Even more heartbreakingly, I think, I work on a regular basis to remember that the idea that the climate crisis is a problem that can be solved is a very Western framing 
for mm. this issue. It's a framing that's based on power. And the truth is, I don't know, maybe there was a point that we could have solved the climate crisis, but that point has passed. And the reality is we can't win. We're just negotiating the terms of our defeat. And that what comes mm. after this moment is going to be really difficult. And that's, um, that's hard for me to think about as the parent of a couple of young children who I'm bringing into this world. And to hold alongside that, that just because that's true doesn't mean that there aren't profoundly deep grounds for hope and ways we can exercise significant agency in ways that will make a long-term generational difference. So I'm trying to remember that. I'm trying to remember or re-remember what it means to be a human that is part of a more than human world. Like it's not like there are humans and there are nature, like humans are creatures, just like everything else. And I'm learning again. And I find that the, um, that the crows and turkeys and deer that populate my side yard are beginning to teach me again, what that, uh, what that means and what it means to have those relations. And I feel like part of this work is also teaching me to remember what it means to be Christian. Um, so mm -hmm. much of what, and I think this is true for many of us who've grown up in, in, in this spiritual lineage, so much of what we think is Christianity is in fact a cultural artifact of the enlightenment, of colonization, of whiteness, of power. And then when you go back down to the roots, you discover that the, the, the religion that lies at the roots is far more wild and terrifying and wonderful and relevant to the moment that we're in than this artifact that is known as white Western Christendom. And so mm -hmm. I, I feel like part of this process as well for me and for many people who are part of my spiritual lineage is rediscovering who we are down at our roots um, beneath this particular moment of history and culture. Mm. Mm. As my friend Sophie Strand says, we wilding the rabbi. Mm. Mm. Well, that is a um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. That's been such a beautiful conversation. And I'm um, I highly encourage folks to check out the BTS Center's uh, website, which will be in the show notes. And they always have a variety of offerings, most of which are free, and they can entail one-off one online gatherings or more involved um, regular kind of touch, touching stone points. Um, and also great appreciation for uh, the, the opportunity. You know, um, Christy and I did some work with you on Circular Time, which was so much fun. Um, and the opportunity to be in collaboration and community with you in these various ways. Indeed. And um, if I might just put in a shameless podcaster plug at this moment, um, especially since I'm sensing from this conversation that um, many of our listeners probably share the same questions and interests. And clearly those are ones you are drawing people into in some wonderful ways. Uh, the BTS Center does have a podcast called Climate Changed about finding faith, life, and love in a climate-changed world. It's co-hosted by myself and my colleague, uh, Nicole Deeroff. And we are, are actually just wrapping up our first season with an audio essay by me talking about what does parenting look like in a climate-changed world based on this haunting conversation I had with my son around the dinner table. But over this first year, we've interviewed activists and poets and theologians and philosophers asking them kind of these big spiritual questions about what does it mean to human in this moment that we're in. So um, if folks are interested in hearing more about that and hearing some of the incredible voices of wisdom that we've had, I'd encourage folks to go and 
check that out. Again, that podcast is called Climate Changed, and you can find it on, on all your podcast delivery platforms. Absolutely. And I not only is it a great title, which I love the title, <laughs> but the all of your all of your episodes have these wonderful questions such as what do we tell the children and how do we stop doing things that make no sense? Um so I really appreciate the simplicity yeah. and and the very the, the very clear questions that you have as your title. Um, it's it's very refreshing to to see that. Um, so thank you so much for the work you are doing, Ben. And um, and I am looking forward to being in continued conversations. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am always happy to hear from you, dear listener, to continue finding ways to connect the disconnected and go deeper on your own journey of remembering and reenchanting with your communities, your organizations, and your families. I invite you to check out our courses and other community offerings via the Sequoia Summit Via website. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Though I must admit I spend much more time working with really amazing people than crafting social media. If you want to work with me one-on-one or bring me to speak at your organization or family office, you can find out more at sarahjelina.com.